Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 51, verses 1 through 12. Again, that's the book of Psalm, chapter 51, verses 1 through 12. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Can we just pray together before we start? God, we just want to take this time and we want to acknowledge that your presence is here. You've always been here and you've invited us to stand here and sit here before you. But as we are singing these songs and as we are listening to um, the offering song, the testimony, as we're reading your scripture, Lord, our hearts are being made even more alive to who you are in this place. So we acknowledge that you are our God, that you are the great I am. And we stand in silence before you and we lay our hearts before you. God, how can we dare to keep selfish and prideful thoughts when we stand before a holy God? So I pray that today and right now, Lord, we would make it all about you. Lord, give me the strength to proclaim only your words. And I pray that all of our hearts and minds right now would be focused on the words that flow from your lips. And I pray that your heart um, would increase in ours and that you would deepen our understanding of who you are. We praise you because you are so good to us. And we thank you because you never give up on us. And we believe and trust that you will do a good work in us today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So hi, (laughs) welcome to CGS. I hope everyone is doing well. 
It's already been um, three and a half weeks into our Lenten season. We're almost halfway there, or we are more than halfway there. And I hope it's going well for you. I know that a lot of you have committed to fasting and feasting or doing something special. But even if you haven't, my prayer is that God has been working in your life, right? That your spirit has become more alive to who he is in these past few weeks. Um, I pray that as a church, we are growing and learning about what it means to yield to the Holy Spirit every day so that our lives would be guided by God and more importantly that this church really would be guided by God alone. And so that's my prayer for myself actually, that I would learn to yield my spirit to his and that's a prayer that I pray for all of you, especially now as we um, listen to the word of God being spoken. Um, here at CGS, we have been going through a sermon series on Joseph, but today we take a break, and I am excited to share on Psalm 51. Um, it's a, it's, um, for me, it was a pretty big task because it's such a well-known psalm, and it's one that is famous. Um, but I ch chose to share on this because I wanted to be true to the work that God is doing in my life during the season of Lent. On Ash Wednesday, which was the first day of Lent, um, I started this Lent devotional. And the first day, or yeah, first lesson told me to read Psalm 51, so I read Psalm 51. And then I came back to it. And then again, and again. And so I really um, have been learning a lot about repentance. I realized there was a lot of things I was hiding in my heart that I just wasn't allowing God to um, speak into, a lot of things I was comfortable hiding. Um, but then I discovered a true freedom in bringing those things before the Lord. And so I want to talk to you today or share with you today on joyful repentance. And I call it joyful repentance because I fear that a lot of us, when we think about repentance, we think it's really depressing and morbid and um, religious even. But what I've been discovering is that true repentance, joyful repentance, leads to a lot of freedom and a lot of life. And so I hope that is what the Spirit speaks to us um, as I share today. Like I said, it's a famous psalm written by a famous king. And it's, it's, the background story is a really famous one as well. Um, and, you know, all, all of this psalm is good, but there was one verse that really, like, grabbed a hold of my heart's attention, and it just won't let go, even to this day. There's just one verse. And it's verse 12, when it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And this is really a cry that's coming from the lips of a man who has sweet communion with the Lord. I mean, he's enjoyed an intimate relationship, intimate fellowship with God. And at this point, when he cries this out, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, he is broken. He is desperate because he knows his sin is before him. He is repenting of these things. His heart is laid out before the God, living God. And he is desperate for more of him. And he is longing for a freshness in his spirit. 
a freshness in his walk with the Lord, a freshness in his friendship with the Lord. And so I want to share with you on that a little bit today. Just to give you a background on David. David was a king of Israel. Uh, He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a decorated soldier. He won a lot of victories out on the battlefield. People praised him for what he did out in war. But people praised him also for what he did in the kingdom. He was loved. He was so well-loved by his people, and he was so well-loved by God. But with one mistake, well, actually a string of mistakes, his whole life just comes crushing. And so 2 Samuel 11 tells a little bit of this story, how it all went down. And it says in that chapter that it all went down during springtime of the year. Now, why is that so important? I mean, just to give you a little bit more of a background, his sin was basically he saw a woman bathing naked, he committed adultery, he had sex with a married woman, and then he killed her husband, right? So I thought, okay, is it important that it was springtime because it was warm enough for the woman to be bathing outside naked? And it's not really. It's because during springtime, the kings in the area did something every year. And this is what they did. Every time... um, Every springtime of that year, the kings would go out, they would take their armies, and they would fight. So you imagine all these kings and their armies coming, and what they're doing is they're um, trying to extend their territory, but they're also trying to guard and protect their territory. And it says right right off the bat, it says, um, it was springtime when the kings go out to battle, and David sent Joab who was his commander of the army and his servants with him in all of Israel. But, but David remained at Jerusalem. Why did David remain in Jerusalem? Why did he send someone else to do his work? Why did he send other people when he should have been there? Actually, he should have been the one leading his army. And we can't really know for sure But a lot of commentators have noted that soon after David became king, he became complacent. Perhaps power hungry, a little smug, because he's so well liked by everyone. He had so many successes, maybe even a little bit entitled. And so what we see here is that David's act of adultery didn't just happen one day. It's not like he woke up one day and said, you know what, today I am going to commit adultery. It all began with the heart, the heart, the heart of complacency, the heart of pride, the heart of smugness. And so he's home because he's not where he should be. He's home. And he's just kind of walking around outside. And oh my goodness, he sees a woman bathing and she is beautiful. And at that moment, he should have turned his eye away, but he kept on looking. And he was so intrigued by this naked, beautiful woman bathing that he calls for a messenger and he asks, who is she? The messenger comes to him and he says, King, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's married. 
At that point, David should have been like, okay, he's married. she's married. And he says she is married and she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, we see a list of 37 names. And these names are the men who are perhaps David's closest friends. Why? Because they are his most trusted and loyal soldiers. And that's what David spent a lot of his time doing. He fought these battles. They were with him. They risked his life for him. Even when he was on the run, you know, um, from Saul trying to kill him, they were there with him, and Uriah was one of them. Knowing full well that Bathsheba was Uriah's wife, he then calls for her. Last week in our small group, we, um, we talked a lot about this. We studied Genesis chapter 4 and 5. And we talked about what God said to Cain. And when God, discuss, or when God rejected Cain's offering and Cain's face was downcast, God went to him and he said something really important. He warned Cain about sin. And this is what God says to Cain about sin. He says, if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, so you must rule over it. If you, do, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. David does not do well here. He does not do well. He had several opportunities where he could have been like, you know what, I should turn around. I should stop right here. But he just keeps on going, keeps on looking, keeps on asking. And finally, he calls for her. And then he sleeps with her. And then she becomes pregnant. She writes a note to David. Dear king, I am pregnant. And then David starts to freak out. He has to cover this. I mean, he's a, he's a king of a big kingdom. A lot of people have praised him. They love him. They adore him. And Uriah is his good friend, a trusted soldier. I must do something about it. So this, he comes up with this brilliant plan. He says, I need to find a way to let Uriah know or uh, keep from Uriah that that is not his child. And so he calls Uriah from the battlefield where Uriah is risking his life for David. And he says, I want to report Uriah. But then he doesn't see Uriah until it's too late in the night. And then David says, you know what? It's too late. Why don't you go home? Go home. You deserve it. Before you go back out, go home, eat good food, sleep in your bed, have sex with your wife, and then go back out. And Uriah, Uriah being the man of integrity that he is, he says, how can I? How can I go sleep with my wife and enjoy good food and enjoy that comfort when my men are out there fighting? He says, no. And so he doesn't go back to the battlefield, but he sleeps outside, not at his home. The next day, David is desperate, and he goes, Uriah, you really deserve it. Go. Go home, eat good food, have, have fun with your wife. And again, Uriah declines. And at that point, David is just desperate. Again, he could have changed things. But what he does in his desperation, it leads him further into sin, and he writes this um, confidential note. And the sick thing is he writes this note and he gives it to Uriah to give to the commander. And this is what the note said. The note told Joab to put Uriah at the front lines of the battle where the battle is the fiercest. And then he said to draw back. 
draw back so that Uriah is exposed and that he is killed. And that is exactly what happens. And Uriah had to take that note that, you know, that's basically his death sentence. He carried that note to Joab. And at the news of her husband's death, Bathsheba mourns. And when that period of mourning is over, David calls her, they get married, and then she gives birth to a son. And in David's perspective, he's like, oh, oh, no one found out. My plan worked. Everything is covered. No one has to know. They will think that this baby is ours in wedlock. All is well. And he's probably just sighing in relief. But this is what I learned from this. If we're not careful, if we're not alert, we're so easily seduced into sin. And before we know it, we are just, we keep going, keep going, we keep going. And then the greater danger is this. We actually think that we can cover it, hide it, and keep it secret. And then when nothing bad happens right away, We misunderstand. We misunderstand God's patience for tolerance. And then we just keep doing the very thing that is offensive to God. That is what David is thinking. No one knows and no one will ever know. I do good in covering it. And yet, it says in the last verse of that chapter, The thing that David had done, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Nothing is hidden from God. The Lord had seen it all. The Lord had seen all of David's thoughts and actions, and the Lord comes for David. The Lord comes through David through Nathan, a prophet who is a trusted friend and advisor of David. He comes to him and he tells, this, uh, tells the King David this story. And at the end, he uses this very story to call out David on his sin of adultery and murder. And David's response is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, for I have sinned. Have mercy on me, O God, for I have sinned. There's no excuses here. He's not lying. He's not blaming. He's not downplaying his sin. He doesn't say, God, Bathsheba was right there bathing outside. What am I supposed to do? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, God, if I didn't cover this, all my kingdom people would have found out. And they would have been destroyed. I don't want that for my people. I'm responsible for them. He doesn't say, God, I didn't have to kill Uriah if he had just listened to me and went home and slept with his wife. None of that. Just a pure confession before the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, for I have sinned. Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. So God, whatever you do, you decide to do with me, you are justified in doing it. That's the start of true repentance. It's not watering it down, no excuses, no blaming it on situations, circumstances. You just come before the Lord and you say, God, I have sinned. Have mercy on me. And some of us are so afraid to go there. I was afraid to go there to the darkest part of our hearts. Why? Because we know really well, full well, how weak we are. You know the very offensive thing that you just keep doing and doing and doing. And we just wanna, don't want to go there, so we ignore it. Some of us, we don't ever go there because we are too prideful. There is no fear of God in us. There is no love of God in us. And so we don't even think to repent of our sins. And then others of us, we actually get there. We confess our sin before God. We know full well our, our sin, our evil deeds. We know all of it and we bring it before the Lord. But then we get stuck. We get stuck under the heaviness of shame, of guilt, of our brokenness. But I want to tell you today, brothers and sisters, that is not repentance. That is not what God has for you when he calls you to repentance. Because remember, this is a God who gave his son for us, allowed his body to be broken for us so that we could be freed of our sin and shame and guilt. So that is not the point and the heart behind repentance. That is why David comes out of this period of repentance and he comes out of it singing and rejoicing. It's because his repentance was not focused on himself, his evilness. It wasn't focused on, oh my gosh, the punishment I'm going to receive. The focus of David's repentance was really on God. He brings his sin before the Lord. He is real. But he brings it to the Lord before the throne of grace, love, and mercy. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, there are two kinds of grief. There's an ungodly grief and there's a godly grief. A godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Ungodly grief is when we look at our sin and we grieve over ourselves and we tremble over the fear of punishment, over the fear of embarrassment, of people finding out. But godly grief is when we look at our sin and we grieve over what our sin did to our beloved Savior, what our sin did to Jesus, and we tremble because it breaks our heart of what it cost him. It is my sin that hung him there. It's my sin that broke his fellowship with his Abba Father. It's my sin that breaks God's heart and grieves his spirit. And that is what David does. He's not frantic over what might happen to him at that point. He might have been before. That's why he covered it. But when God comes to him, and when God calls him to repentance, his focus then moves on to God. And as David presses in closer and closer to God's heart, his sorrow is deepened as he realizes 
that he is just so far from God's holiness. He's just so far from God's demand of holiness of his children, the people he loves. And he writes this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight truth in the inward being. What he's saying is, it's not just my sinful act, God, that grieves you. It's my sinful heart. It's the condition of my heart that nailed you to the cross. It's not just the lustful eye with which I looked at Bathsheba. It's not just the act of adultery or murder. It's my heart, God. Because when I look inside my heart, there was a lack of truth in there. My heart was not captivated by your love at that moment. I was not ravished by your love for me at that moment. I forgot about you. I stopped being excited by you. I stopped delighting in you. I stopped enjoying you. I stopped delighting and bringing you delight. And I lost the joy of salvation. That is why I sinned. I became complacent, apathetic, prideful. I wasn't doing what I should have been doing. I was in places I shouldn't have been. And my heart and my flesh was so available and vulnerable to sin. Yes, I lost my joy because of my sin. But I also sinned because I had already lost the joy of salvation. That's repentance. It might begin with remorse over what I have done perhaps even disgust at the person I am and my thoughts and what I have done. But by God's grace, he allows us to lift our eyes off of ourselves and to fix it on him. That's grace. That he allows us to lift our eyes from the dirtiness of our sin and fix it on the holiness and the beauty and the love of God. That is grace and that is mercy. And then I become grieved. I'm grieved by what my sin did to my beautiful Savior, and I'm grieved that I had brought before God a lack of devotion, that there was a lack of truthfulness in my life before the Lord, that there was a lack of devotion to this God who has been so good and so merciful to me. That's why he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God's call to repentance is over all of us. If you belong to the Lord, and if you are a child of God, daily he calls you to this repentance. Because a call to repentance is really a call to be renewed, and refreshed in your friendship with him. And in place of the complacency, the pride, the apathy, what the spirit brings is then a greater yearning for God, a greater affection for Jesus, a consuming desire to know more of God and love him more, to please him, to honor him, in my heart, in my thoughts, in my actions, in my deeds. And then David's prayer becomes the prayer of all of us who belong to the Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God, 
something that only you can do, God. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because, God, I cannot live this life apart from you. And restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. God, there was a time when I loved you deeply. There was a time when my heart was ravished by your love. When all I needed and all I wanted was you, God. When I was overflowing with thankfulness. When I thought about you and what you have done. So bring me back to that place, Lord. Renew me and restore me. So call to repentance. It truly is. It's truly a call of grace and love. It's his grace that the spirit searches our hearts and reveals our sin and convicts us of our sin. It's truly his grace that brings us to that seat, that sacred seat of repentance. Because then we are brought closer, deeper, near to our Savior. And so CGS, don't we want to be a people who are spiritually healthy? Don't we want to be a church that is holy, mature in our faith, powerful in our witness, strong in our love, strong in victory, then brothers and sisters, take the rest of this Lenten season and really bring your heart before the Lord. Don't be scared to go there. And don't be too prideful to go there either. But come before him. Allow the spirit to search your heart, even the darkest and deepest part of your heart, and repent before the Lord. And I pray that you would come out of it full of the joy of salvation. And I pray that our church would be full of the joy of salvation so that the whole world would know what an awesome, beautiful God we belong to. That they would know how sweet it is to commune with this God. And brothers and sisters, this communion we have with Jesus, the very communion that we enjoy together in this time, that communion was only made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do not take it lightly. Do not walk away from it and do not wait. Step into it. Step into a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus, repenting of your sins, but also fixing your eyes on Jesus who was broken so that you may be healed and forgiven of your sin. Let's take this time and pray. The Spirit of God is here, and the Spirit searches all things. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. But the Lord has already revealed his heart to us. So what do we have to fear? The Lord has already revealed his compassion, his love, his mercy, and his grace. So let us come before the Lord without fear and lay our hearts before him. So take this time and let the Spirit search you. Search your heart. And as particular sin or attitude of the heart come to mind, repent of it. Bring it before the throne of grace and mercy.
and allow the Spirit to renew you and restore you with joy once again. Let's pray together.